in central London. Hedgehogs used to be present in all the central London royal parks uh, back in the 1970s and even into the 80s. But now the Regent's Park is the only uh, breeding population of hedgehogs found within that central London area. You are listening to Welcome back to the episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. Today I'm sitting with Tony Crosdale. And this is Billy Brown, your other co host. And today we have Joan Blaustein. Joan, who are you and what do you do? I'm Director of Urban Forestry and Ecosystem Management for Philadelphia Parks and Recreation. Great. And before we get too much more into what Joan does and our topics for this episode, We'll just do our usual reminders. You can always um, reach out to us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at urbwildlifecast, and you can hit us up on Facebook. Let us know what you think of the podcast, any ideas for future topics, um, complaints, accolades, whatever you want. And then please go into your podcasting platform of choice and rate us, especially if you like the podcast. Please tell your friends about it. You can use whatever medium you want. Tell them in person, tell them online, snap at them, slip them a note. Um, But if you like this podcast, please spread the word so more people can find it and enjoy it too. So this episode, the bigger theme, I think, is how we bring nature to people in cities. What do we do to, to shed light on and sort of help preserve biodiversity in cities for urbanites? Or people visiting cities, I shouldn't say, just people who live here. And so we thought that could unite your work, Joan, and some of the stuff we're going to hear about from Nigel with London's Royal Park System. So talk a little bit about what it is that you actually do. Well, me, myself, and my team, (laughs) not to put too fine a point on it, um, our small but mighty team are responsible for all of the natural lands in the city park system. The city park system is about 10,000 acres More than half of that is natural lands, 5,600 acres. And that means meadows, forests, wetlands, stream corridors, um, those kinds of things. So not active recreation areas like ball fields or or rec centers, but more natural areas. And we're responsible for making sure that they survive and that they remain healthy so they can do the work they're supposed to do. Okay. How did you get into it? I've been working in the environmental field for about 40 years, so I've grown up with this field and um, learned as I've gone, and although concepts change, the basic need for clean air, clean water, all those things remain a constant for humans, so. Okay. You're retiring soon? I am. Okay. You've been at this for a little while. Are there projects or initiatives that you look at that you're like, wow, that was really great, these particularly proud accomplishments, that kind of thing? Oh, so many, so very many. (laughs) Um, One of the main ones is during my tenure, we reestablished a native plant nursery for the park, which had been in existence on and off since the early 1900s and had been abandoned and, and fallow. It never... Um, it, it functioned as a tree-growing nursery more than anything else, and now we've established it as native plant nursery where we collect seed from the local park system as well as some state parks that have unique varieties that we're looking for in order to have the species that we want to put back in the park for restoration. Okay. Those aren't always available during in the commercial yeah. trade, so we have to collect them and grow them ourselves. So why, so why are native might be an obvious question for someone like 
like it's in this circle, but why is it important that Philadelphians have native plants around them when they go to a park? I, I have a different answer for that now than I would have 10 years ago when I first came. I mean, the idea that our forests are considered native collections of plants used to be an assumption that everybody made, that they were native, they've always been here, this collection of plants and animals have lived together for eons. And in fact, that's not the case. It's it's really hasn't been the case for more than a century. I mean, most of the trees, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's been an evolution. And so the idea that there's one set of uh, prime species that belong together in this place is really a fallacy now. And um, so while there's certainly a suite of native plants that we want to encourage and keep growing here that support birds that come through here on their flyway or insects or reptiles, all of those things, it's, it's not the ultimate uh, collection of plants that we, we want to encourage in this area. So what's the reason now? Well, essentially what are ecosystems, not just here in, in urban areas, but really globally, we have collections of plants and animals that have never lived together before but are functioning as ecosystems. Sure. Those are called novel ecosystems because they've never been in this combination before. And they are changing at a pace that normal ecosystems would go through big changes. They would settle out. They would adapt. Now, due to climate change and globalization and the impacts that are coming from all over the world, the pace of that change is so rapid that um, ecosystems aren't really given the time to adapt. So yeah. they're collections. They're still doing important work. They're cleaning the air, absorbing stormwater, functioning as these natural industrial areas that we need them to, but just in different combinations than we're used to seeing. So then with native plants, though, so for are, is the is the benefit of native plants that they perform the ecosystem services better than others, or is it if you had uh, a native, let's say a native cherry tree or something, um, and there were a European cherry tree that functioned similarly, is there something more valuable, and this is a big topic, and if there's something more yeah. valuable in the native, the, our native black cherry or, or pin cherry, whatever, that, that we're not, that, that we want that even though they might be, might serve similar ecosystem functions. Right. So, so you have to separate out the, the function in one category. Now, they might both have the same leaf area, absorb yeah. the same amount of, of CO2, you know, retain the same amount of water, do all those things the same, but they're not going to attract or support the same insect and bird population. Okay. Yeah. So that's really the difference. So you, ha- you have to look at a broader picture that, yes, these native trees and shrubs take on more functions, but if you look purely at ecosystem function as, you know, CO2 and, and water, sure. they're the same. Yeah. Is there something, is there an element of, this is getting a little more romantic about it maybe, but is there an element of heritage to it also? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I mean, there are, I mean, that that um, charismatic idea of, you know, huge beech trees that the people associate with certain areas or, or certain spring ephemerals that you want to see, you, you, you know, make sure that you, you see, yeah, there's... That's what attracts people to certain areas, okay. but um, but I but want my pres- trout lilies. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, but preserving them is what the challenge is now. Yeah. When there are other pressures that they haven't had to deal with before, and that's yeah. what our struggle is here in the city, is trying to figure out what we can afford to preserve, what we need to preserve, how we do that. Yeah, that's hard for. I think a lot of city governments are have a lot of pressures and a lot that they have to spend money on. I say it's really it's 
lovely that, that Philadelphia has as good a system as it does. I mean, it's we just really so, standout so parks. We are so fortunate. Yeah. Hey, podcast listeners. We had a minor recording hitch at this point. We'd also started talking about McMichael Park, which is a six-acre park in the neighborhood of East Falls in Philadelphia. We want to make sure that in places like McMichael, um, where there are huge heritage trees that provide a lot of shade, we want to make sure that that stand of trees lasts. We just lost a champion polonia there a few weeks ago. It was the biggest in the city and just reached its time. That's a funny thing to lose a champion polonia because then people will say, well... It's a Polonia. Yeah. It's, it's not yeah. a... It's right, It's an interesting right. question. Okay. But the, there are certain... Then you go back to the aesthetics. The people there desperately wanted us to replace it with another Polonia. Okay. We've said, well, no. And Polonia that's, is a, an exotic tree, a.k.a. princess trees, that are also... People look at them as weed species because right. they spring up along in vacant lots and mm-hmm. along um, railroad lines, that kind of thing. Right. Go on. Okay. But, yeah, so, you know, it's, it's a challenge. You know, what, what are you going to provide in each area? I mean, we, we have this vast system, and we can't work everywhere all the time. So yeah. we've really focused a lot of the work on specific areas that are of a high quality or that we can put our hands around and really make a difference in, not ignoring these other areas that may be more degraded, but, you know, we have to be able to manage with the staff and resources we have and be able to not just restore it but maintain it and monitor it over a long time. Okay. Cool. On a kind of sad, stark note for our listeners, while Philadelphia has one of the largest park systems in in the country, we also have the highest amount of poverty of the big cities in America. The largest cities in the United States. We have, yeah. the, we have about a quarter poverty, yeah, of the poverty line, which, so, is, which is incredibly, if you think about, people don't always have, this is what I, more of what I do for a living, but poverty for a family of four is 24000 a year. Mm-hmm. And for one person in Philadelphia, it's in the order of like 12000 or so a year. So to have one quarter of the population living at that level is, it's a big problem. And, and so that means that our we have so we have so large park system and we have a quarter of the population of poverty that means you have a lot less tax base to fund the park system you know as, as you would to a comparable other big city you do and and I think I'd say also though that there's a for me it sort of also enhances the mission for the well, parks well certainly does yeah these aren't, a, free, a lot of people can't get out to go on a family vacation right, to right. the Adirondacks or the Yellowstone or something you know and we have parks you know, to Two parks that you could seriously think you're in the mountains. Right, they're comparable the, to this. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so part of what what I've been struggling with is um, how to because we know you you know you've you're talking to people about biophilic cities and the benefits of nature on people and yeah. So that's been well established that that being in nature, being in green spaces is vitally important to us as humans. I mean, we need that connection, even though many of us have lost that connection. And because of it, we've lost some essential parts of it. I mean, I think some children have, you know, less patience. They're, they're, they have more anxiety. They have more health problems because they, they have become disconnected from nature. So how do you, you know, allow people to use these parks, introduce them? And the idea has always been, well, if you have parks in close proximity to where people live they'll go to them yeah but 
I've been doing reading recently that says no matter how close a park is, or even if someone has a yard, if they aren't oriented toward nature, they will not make use of that. But first, you have to have that orientation to nature. You're not afraid of nature. There's something attractive about it. And so we really have to, you know, over the last several decades, couple generations probably, we have become in our park system very disconnected. So the people that, that, you know, use the Wissahickon or the Pennypack, some of those other parks, and are familiar with it, go. But we have vast areas of our population that have never been to those parks. and Even, even in though their, they might be a few blocks away. Right. And yeah. and even in our own recreation centers, there's such a – they're devoid of nature. There may be a couple of trees. So how do we reintroduce nature on that scale, that very small scale, yeah. to children to begin to – reacquaint them with nature and their benefits and then ultimately as generations go by people feel that connection again and this is i mean just to not to hype tony's and your work too much but the i mean this seems like when you guys have structured the bird philly program um you're not just taking people on bird walks in the wasahickon you're also taking them on walks in very urban right settings i mean i know about rittenhouse square but where are other places that you wouldn't think of as a birding destination hunting park and Hunting Park, describe it real quick. So Hunting Park's, how, how large is it? 89 acres. 89 acres. But it's not, it's all manicured and um, athletic. It's not, it's mm-hmm. not, there's absolutely no, there's not even any area of understory. Um, so all the... Grass and trees. Yeah. yeah. Right. And then, so to get any of like, the only white-throated sparrows we found were in the community garden because there was some like structure, right? Mm-hmm. Well, we saw a whole lot of raptors there, um, which is pretty amazing. And we granted, it was we picked a good time of year for it. But mm. we, I guess that much open sky, we had a, uh, I think we had fifteen individual raptors wow. of five species: red-tailed hawk, turkey vultures, um, merlins. We had three merlins. Mm. Um, we had uh, sharpshin and a cooper's hawk. Very nice. So it was in sapsuckers, and uh, uh, we had a. So, uh, sorry, I was about to say Saltar Vero, they changed the name. The Blue Head of Vero, Hermit Thrush. It was great. And so describe the area around Hunting Park. So it's a very um, impoverished neighborhood, right? It's North Philadelphia. Yeah. It's, very dense. Yeah. Dense row house, North Philly, high poverty rate around there. And so it's one of these places where if you're trying to turn people onto nature in their backyards, it's mm-hmm. it's a good place to start with. Yeah. yeah. The interview that we're using, that we're featuring in our episode today, is about it's about hedgehogs. I mean, obviously we don't have hedgehogs in Philadelphia. Hedgehogs are an old world species, um, or old world uh, set of species. Um, but are there are there you know whether we're talking about birds or um, uh, or mammals or other animals? Any examples come to mind of programming to sort of study and try to preserve species that might be sort of on the decline in Philadelphia's parks? Yeah, how, like how much does the individ, individual species factor into management decisions? Well, one of the, the biggest examples of, of a management decision specifically for bird species was the expansion of the number of meadows we have in the park system. When we took over the park system, there were there was virtually no meadow land at all. I mean, yeah. all the agricultural land that had once been meadows had 
reverted to forest or was being mowed. And so we actively set about creating, turning mowed areas into grasslands and meadows and then expanding existing meadows, the one in the, the Wissahickon in Houston. Houston meadow, yeah. We took from 15 acres to 45 acres. We've created meadows all through the system. And that, that's specifically to support migratory bird life and, okay. and resident bird life. And it was a land type we simply didn't have. And it's something I, I still take people hiking there, and they're like, you know, they just can't quite believe this is all in the city. You got some views over the Houston Meadows down into the Wissahickon. They're yeah. just spectacular. Yeah, they are. Um, and we'll go there and just like, especially late summer, early fall, when the wildflowers are just booming everywhere, yeah. and just like look at all the butterflies. It's a great spot. There's um, it was really cool. We had uh, an astro flycatcher. Was it last winter? Uh, I think they found it on the midwinter bird census. And it's a western flycatcher, um, not the western flycatcher, which was it used to be a bird. Well, actually, split into two species, but, the, but it's, a, it's a western species. It's a, it's the western counterpart to our great crested flycatcher. In fact, if I if this bird was to show up in, um, you know, May or June, I would just assume it was a great crested fly. I probably would have give it a, a second look. Yeah. Um, but I. Uh, I mean, even though I probably should be able to tell the difference because it doesn't have biggest crest, it's not as... It's not as I, I won't hold it against right. you. But <laughs> the thing is, is it's very similar, it's similar enough looking. But it showed up in in Taconi Park in one of those restored meadows, and it's not in, in it's, it's, it's not a coincidence. Like, this bird was, was wandering, mm-hmm. and it was looking for whatever, you know... And, you know, out west, it's... You're a lot more open. Yeah, it's looking yeah. for, like, you know, edge... It's not like a grassland species but but neither is this meadow this meadow is more like like a you know it's a little opening with a couple of shrubs here or there it's like it looks exactly like you'd find this thing out in, in, the, in out west and it's, it was not you know no coincidence that it, that it popped in there and I thought and so I sent around the emails you know being like look at what you've done you, you build <laughs> they will come I'm uh, Dr. Nigel Reeve. I've been studying hedgehogs on and off since I was a PhD student at Royal Holloway College, University of London, back in 1976. So I've been interested in hedgehogs for a long time. I was a a lecturer at uh, the University of Roehampton for about 20 years. And for 11 years, I worked for the Royal Parks in London as their head of ecology. So that's my general background, really. Great. And uh you know, for, for people who've never been to London or never been to Regent's Park, um, mm. could you please describe the park? What's it like? Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful park. Uh, all the royal parks in London are e- extremely beautiful places. Regent's Park is unique in many ways. It's got a very varied landscape. It's about 166 hectares, so it's, it's a big place, and it's embedded in the dense urban space that is north central london it's in the north part of the borough of westminster and just goes over into camden for those people who who know a little bit about london so it's in central london and it's got housing all around it and dense uh, urban environments surrounding it completely and within the park it's got areas of uh, grassland shrubberies formal gardens but also informal gardens woodland uh, rough grassland, so a, ho- a whole range of different habitats. Also, within the area of the park, there is uh, London Zoo, the Zoological Society of London, which is a, 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 an historic zoo in Britain, and 
were also important partners in our in our project. Also in there are the Regents uh, University and several private res- residences. This might seem like such an obvious thing for someone from from the UK or I mean anywhere in Europe, the Middle East or Africa, but can you give a quick description of a hedgehog? What are we talking about? Yeah, well, they're, they're really intriguing animals, and I'm, I'm very fond of them indeed. They're, they're about 20 centimetres or so long, that's sort of eight or nine inches long, which isn't that big. They are brown-furred, but on the back of the animal, over the crown of its head and over, over its back, um, the fur is completely replaced by about 7,000 or so sharp little spines that are about an inch long each and uh, the animal when it's threatened by a predator will roll itself into a ball very tightly um, to to defend itself just showing its spines on the outside they're they're insectivorous so what that really means is they eat macro invertebrates so worms slugs beetles whole range of uh, uh, insect prey and they're nocturnal almost exclusively nocturnal they nest by day in in uh, in the undergrowth uh, and then in the winter when the invertebrate food starts to disappear they hibernate uh, and they're true hibernators they do they do they don't just go into a sort of prolonged sleep they they go into proper torpor well i guess describe the the regent's park hedgehog population are they sort of all over the place or are they just in a couple pockets like what do you find in terms of hedgehogs when you go to regent's park well of course, the general public never sees them because the park closes at night and the hedgehogs come out at night. Uh-huh. So they they only ever see animals that perhaps shouldn't be out like they're ill or, you know, not have failed to get back somewhere sure. or they've disturbed them somehow. So uh, n- normally a, a visitor wouldn't see the animal. But as part of the study that we've been conducting, going out at night, searching with torches, we've built up a pretty good picture of where hedgehogs are in the park. And they occur more or less throughout the park, but what they tend to avoid are the very large open areas, the sports pitches. There's a lot of um, area devoted in the park to uh, public sports, uh, football and rugby, cricket, uh, those sorts of sports. Mm-hmm. And these very large open pitches aren't areas that the hedgehogs tend to frequent, but they are found throughout the the formal gardens and uh, and the less formal gardens of, of the park. And strangely enough, there are also found a little dense population of them in the northeast of the, the park, where there's a, a car park that serves the zoological society. Um, and we really don't know why they find that area so attractive, but obviously it's, it's good habitat for them. Mm, okay. You know, for someone like me who thinks of, of of hedgehogs as being just all over the place if you go to England, um, mm. wh- why is it special that they are living here in this park in London? What's happening to hedgehogs, uh, I guess, throughout the range in the UK and, and in London specifically? That's a really good question, Billy, because uh, a lot of work's been uh, done in recent years, particularly by the People's Trust for Endangered Species, which is a, a charitable body in, in, in the UK to conduct surveys of hedgehogs nationally using a, a variety of different methods from people reporting hedgehogs in their backyards to roadkill surveys. And the conclusion of, of all the surveys that have taken place is that hedgehogs are drastically declining in mm. the UK, especially in rural areas. And we believe that's the result of landscape scale changes due to, to intensive farming. 
but not only that they are declining in in urban areas and if you look at the situation in london in central london hedgehogs used to be present in all the central london royal parks uh, back in the 1970s and even into the 80s but now the regent's park is the only uh, breeding population of hedgehogs found within that central london area sure there are still hedgehogs in the the surrounding suburban areas and uh, um, in some places like Hampstead Heath for example uh, you know there are still hedgehogs so they're still widespread and they're still relatively common but the picture is one of rapid decline and we're very concerned about them. Quite a a few years ago when I was still working for the Royal Parks, um, the Royal Parks by the way is a government agency that um, manages uh, the, the central parks uh, when I was still working for them, we were aware that there were hedgehogs in in the Regent's Park, but not we we knew nothing about them at all. We just knew they were there, um, but we didn't have the resources to carry out a a research project. Now, since then, I've I've retired, and uh, so I actually uh, paradoxically have a little more time on my hands. <laughs> and also, the Royal Parks Foundation, which is a, a fundraising body which helps the Royal Parks um, fundraise to 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 uh, um, fund good works in the Royal Parks, found a source of funding for the for the project. So what we were able to do is, with the assistance of Professor John Gurnell, who's uh, a very well-known uh, mammal expert in Britain, myself, I'm a known hedgehog specialist, and the staff of the, uh, the uh, Royal Parks Foundation, and a hell of a lot of volunteers, about 100 volunteers altogether, we conducted this study over the last two years which has uh, given us the insights in, into uh, what needs to be done in this, in this population. Are you seeing indications of inbreeding or have concerns that this might be too small population to be viable in the, the longer term? Yes. I mean, that's one of the, the very big conservation concerns surrounding the region's park population in particular, but also many other fragmented populations in, in urban and suburban areas. The fragmentation definitely leads to a restricted gene pool within the population, and we're doing work on that. And at the moment, the, the the data are very provisional, but it does indeed support the idea that these animals are a very, very restricted genetic population. But the question is really whether that's always going to result in problems for the population. Sure. I'm sure your listeners and, uh, and uh, followers are all very aware that Island populations can often stem from very small numbers of introduced founder founder individuals, and they can be very successful and breed prolifically and and do extremely well. And indeed, that's the case with hedgehogs on Scottish islands. They've been introduced to some of the Scottish islands and have reproduced alarmingly, in fact, so to the point where they can actually be a pest to ground nesting birds. So it could be that even though the population is rather isolated genetically and, and and physically that may not result in in uh, problems for the for the uh, population but it is an issue and and it's something we are concerned about but if you'll pardon me carry on just a moment that's okay um, probably more importantly it's the question of whether or not that population is vulnerable to extinction extinction through chance fluctuations in population size and yeah. we believe that the population is very vulnerable because it's quite small so this population is uh, small. We think it's no more than about 50 individuals and sometimes rather less than that. At the end of last year's field work, we thought there might be only 25 individuals in the population, something of that size. 
So this is a very small population and could easily just become extinct through random changes in, in uh, food availability or, or um, a particularly heavy mortality one year. Well, I had reached the end of my questions, but your comment about the Scottish islands got me thinking about something. I mean, mm. apparently they've been successfully introduced to islands. Is there, are there thoughts of introducing them to parks where they have, where you do not find them? Yes, many people try this sort of thing. Um, of course, there are uh, regulations concerning introducing animals uh, into into park populations, or, or you know, just to translocating animals. But there's a ready source of animals from uh, rescue centres, you know, animal welfare centres. So what what often happens is that people choose to release animals from those sources into into parks, but they often don't do well and. Really, we're very concerned about making sure that if we were to to carry out any kind of augmentation of the population, any introduction of uh, additional individuals, that it would would be done very rigorous, rigorously. And we want to be sure that the population wasn't viable in its own right. I mean, if we can, the real question is why is the population so small and vulnerable? And the answer to that is probably there are things in the environment of the park that can be com, com, improved, made better for hedgehogs. And so what we're going to do before we consider reintroductions is really try and improve the habitat quality and make the park that much better for hedgehogs so that the population is more robust. And that may be enough to secure the population. And okay. we'd like to do that before we consider bringing in new individuals from, from other populations. Okay, thank you. That, that was all my hedgehog questions. Did you have anything else that might not strike an outsider like hedgehogs would, <laughs> but with, but but you well, find really interesting about the parks or, or some phenomena? Yeah. I, I mean, the, the parks really are incredible hotbeds of biodiversity in, in really quite dense urban environments, and therefore I think very, very important. But what a lot of people tend to focus on, of course, is the things like birds, hedgehogs, big warm-blooded things are the things that people tend to look at more yeah. than anything else but of course it's the invertebrates that are really sometimes the most striking inhabitants of of these parks and work we've done in in richmond park which admittedly is the largest of the the royal parks uh it, it, at about a thousand hectares so it, it's a big patch of land it's about two and a half thousand acres but all these parks are are historic and have remnants of ancient habitat in them and Richmond Park, we've done a lot of work on the invertebrates there. And, uh, you know, we're lo looking at thousands of species of uh, moths, um, flies. So in parks like Richmond Park, we found that the invertebrate communities are really something to, to celebrate their, their uh, historic habitats with relict habitat from long ago. I mean, some of the trees in Richmond Park are over well, they may be seven or 800 years old. So we're talking about very, very long-lived environments. And um, the work we've done in Richmond Park, we're also doing, uh, or have been doing, survey work in many of the other parks and finding a, a richness of uh, fungi and um, many other species indeed. On the invertebrate theme, I've been reading about London's um, stag beetle population. Oh, yes. Are stag beetles one of the the invertebrates you find when you look at Richmond Park and, and look at the invertebrates? Very much so. Um, th there are two parks in particular that are very good at having decaying wood habitats 
remaining in them, and that's uh, Richmond Park and Bushy Park. They're both in the southwest of London. These uh, these decaying wood habitats where trees, when they die, the stumps are left to rot in the ground, are ideal for uh, stag beetles. And as a result, both parks are extremely important stag beetle populations. Um, and so what's the, why is that significant? I mean, are, I, I've, from what I've read, stag beetles are that London sort of sits on where, I guess, their historic habitat is and, and, and that they're otherwise in decline. Am I right on that? That may be true. Um, uh, the way I understand it is that the area around London and the south generally, the south of England, is the, the principal area that stag beetles are, are doing well in. And the London effect may be something to do with the heat island effect of a, of a big city, you know, warming the environment uh, to some extent. So I'm not sure whether that it's the stag beetles, whether London's on a historically important area for stag beetles, or whether in fact the stag beetles are doing well in London because it's a built environment and, and a little bit warmer. Because if you look at the distribution of stag beetles in Britain, they tend to fizzle out as you go further north. So it does seem that they naturally in Britain have a southerly distribution. And you're right, in Europe in general, that this particular species of stag beetle, Lucanus cervus, is uh, very threatened at a European level. And in southwest London in particular, when you see a lot of stag beetles around, you tend to take them a bit for granted. But in fact, this is a, a, a Europe-wide important um, hotspot for stag beetles. Yeah, For birds, you know, things that can fly in, and then in, and then invertebrates, which might do fine on smaller scales of habitat and to some extent can fly around, then it seems like you've got a lot of interesting a lot of interesting biodiversity as long as you're willing to look at a smaller scale, I guess. That's really true. Um, I, I mean the list of important species in the Royal Parks is endless, really. I mean, there are literally thousands of species of beetle, and the flies we did some work. Uh, with traps uh, catching flies in in Bushy Park, this got the uh, people interested in flies so uh, um, het up really that they they had to carry on the work, and that resulted in uh, again a new species of, of fly being found in the park. So oh, neat. really good. A thing called um, oh gosh, almost impossible to pronounce. Um, <laughs> there, there are some brilliant um, invertebrates around, really. Okay. Thank you very much for for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you very much for, for being interested in our work, and I, I really appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> um, another thing that, that um, Nigel Reeve talked about in the interview with him was about, uh, about invertebrate life in parks. Well, we also have policies in place where you're not allowed to remove, you know, people can't go to the park and get firewood. Yeah. You know, and right. I, I hate to say it, like, I felt bad the other day this um, father this. was his kid was in the park and he asked me about taking a, a log out so he can make a table. He's like, "Oh, well, bring my kid here." And I'm like, "You know, you really can't do that." And the reason why is because we need to have these down, you know, trees so they can decompose and, and invert and support the invertebrate populations right. that support everything else. Well, we now have a milling program, so all those big, beautiful oaks and walnuts and cherries, we have a sawmill come a couple times a year. And turn them into lumber that were... So these are the ones would fall down in, in the smaller yeah. parks? And right. Well, and in the, the other parks, you know, and that our crews take out. If they go across a road or something like that? Or yeah. And, um, a lot of ash and, trees. And so. all the ash trees that we've been oh. proactively taking down as well. We're yeah. using those for garden beds. Okay. Um, because they're very resilient. They're not treated. They're a great way to, 
do raised garden beds. Oh, that's a sad story in and of itself. That we're... Yeah, it is. It is. Because about 6% of our canopy is ash, and we're going to lose all of them, except for the few. Well, we've treated about 1,200 ash trees, so we're hoping that they survive over the long term until the bug passes Yeah, have through. they have they made it here yet? Yes, the it is. Yes, they're here. In Philadelphia? In Philadelphia. Uh, the last time last I talked about it was a couple of years ago, and they yeah, were... we found them in June. Where? In, uh, in the Penny Pack and um, in the Taconi. We put traps up around the city, so they're yeah. definitely here. Oh, man. All right. Yeah. Crested day. Huh? This pesky metallic wood borers. I know. I'm going to have to go hug an ash tree while I still can. Yeah, while you still can. We're <laughs> the Emerald Ash Borer. Probably a lot of listeners already know about that. But we should talk about it briefly, yeah. yeah it's an invasive Asian um, species of wood boring beetle that will infest and girdle ash trees. And it's, uh, they, they arrived. Was it Michigan? Was, mm-hmm. was yeah. And they think it was sh- shipping containers. Correct. Yeah, pallets, shipping pallets. And they've been transported uh, unintentionally by people transporting firewood around. And so they're one of those right. things that when you go to a state park and they're like, "Don't bring in wood," you know, make yeah. sure you you buy wood here. Then. Um, but even without that, I mean, they just move to where the next tree is. And once they've decimated yeah. an area, they, they've they continued marching eastward from Michigan and, and other places in the Midwest, which is why they've made it all the way to the coast. So. They're, right. they're also a problem in Europe, too. Oh. Yeah. You'd think that they would have a bit more resistance because there's probably gene flow with the ashes across Eurasia, but apparently... Maybe not that much. Yeah. All right. Well, it's depressing to attend on. Let's think of something happier. Um, yeah. <laughs> One of the your projects that you're really into is Haddington Woods, right? Right. Oh, so yes. we're going to talk about, but you know, but so um, if you want to talk about the Haddington Woods project, because this is beautiful piece of woods in you know in a you know a working class to low income neighborhood that. So let's talk about equity. You know, it's it's that was a topic last night at the um, Commission on Parks and Rec meeting. Mm. And there's some where the city's put a lot of effort into right. an area that's you know doesn't doesn't get that much attention. So it's when, major restoration work. Yeah. 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 So when we were looking for sites to do restoration work, thinking going forward because we've changed our protocol, we're not restoring back to a early 20th century paradigm. We're trying to anticipate what forests are going to look like and what they what they need to thrive a hundred years from now. Mm. So we, we picked three sites, um, one in the Penny Pack, one in the Wissahickon, and one in Cobbs, which is Haddington Woods. And most of our effort has been in the Haddington Woods Cobbs effort. It's the, it's the biggest site. It was the most diverse fi- site. But it also had the opportunity to engage people from that neighborhood more closely than any of the other sites because it's surrounded by neighborhoods. It's easy to get to from public transportation. Yeah. So we, we set up this... Um, this this site to do the work but we also engaged people we had classes that david hewitt taught um, on basic land management and experimental design and have done walks every month for the last three years um, to familiarize people with the site make them understand that it's even though there's a large deer fence up to keep our friends the white-tailed deer out that we want people to come in we want them to understand what we're doing there what the experiments are we're conducting what it means in terms of climate change and and how they can become familiar with that area. But you had you had a whole lecture series at the at the nearby library, mm-hmm. and you trained people to be able to go and monitor and look for things. I mean, this right. is an amazing program. That, yeah, you know, 
And you're and you're replicating it citywide, right? Well, we we did a second round in Pennypack. We did a second series of classes and walks up there around that area, and hopefully somebody will pick that up to continue this work when I'm gone. Well, if it's not picked up by your successor, I would be happy to pick it up as part of, of <laughs> Good. programming. I'm going to hold you to that. Uh, yeah, I'd be honored <laughs> to. Be, that would be great. Yeah. Very neat. Yeah, because people need to understand how important these areas are. I mean, these forests are what's going to permit people to live in this city 100 years from now. If these yeah. forests don't continue to thrive, keeping the air tolerable for us to live in we know what the climate projections are it's going to be very very hot it's going to be a lot wetter we're going to have you know just more extreme conditions and that's what's going to make philadelphia a place that you can keep living yeah i mean but you know it's all hoax so oh yeah (laughs) that's the chinese oh my god it's so crazy it's just a crazy time we live in we're like yeah yeah um but yeah okay so Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks to Nigel for chipping in with some good conversation about some London London Park biodiversity projects. So with that, we'll do our standard reminders. Um, if you do like the podcast, please rate us on your podcasting platform of choice. Please feel free to get in touch with us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com or tweet at us at urbanwildlifecast. You can also find us on Facebook. Tell your friends about it. Tell everybody about it, how much you love the podcast. Feel free to contact us with any of the ideas that you have about the city where you're living or you're visiting and about your parks. Um, what critters, what plants are you happy to see in the parks where you live? We love listener content, uh, and so you know, record something, and we'll find a way to put it on the podcast. Right um, now there's that humpback whale that's hanging out in Hudson River. You know what? If you're uh... There is, and we had an episode, I think it was the first episode of the podcast, we did about the Gotham Whale Project. Mm-hmm. Um, I was visiting my sister in New York the weekend before this past weekend, and I thought the season was ending, so I took a whale watching trip out of um, what's it called Jacob Reese Beach or, or mm-hmm. Reese Landing in Brooklyn. We saw seven different humpback whales on that trip. Wow! All just coming from a subway to bus connection <laughs> to get to the to the boat. And our nation's biggest city, and we saw a ton of them, a ton of gannets um, flying around and diving mm-hmm. on the same, the same Manhattan, or they call them bunker there. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just a great trip, and it was like, yep, went to New York, saw some whales. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was saying, if you, if you saw, if you actually in, we, you know, in the on the riverside of, of Manhattan, and you and you you know you saw it or whatever, let us know. When this airs, Tony will probably be in Australia. Having a great time, uh, enjoying the the summer <laughs> or the spring and summer, yeah. um, and recording lots of great content. So we'll have a, a one or two Aust- Tony in Australia episodes when he gets back. All right, guys, thank you very much. Hey, podcast listeners! Since we mentioned my New York trip in the recording, I thought I'd include some audio from it. First, we have a couple minutes from when I went to the Greenpoint Cemetery in Brooklyn to check out the Quaker parakeets or monk parakeets, depending on what you want to call them, uh, the exotic uh, South American parakeets that have established a population there and a couple other spots around Brooklyn. Um, I went there with my sister Megan and uh, my two-year-old niece Soji. And then later that same day, I went on a whale-watching trip with my friend Russell. We left uh, also from Brooklyn on American Princess Cruises, and they operate in conjunction with the Gotham Whale Project. 
uh, and we had a fabulous time. It was cold and windy, but there were enough Menhaden, a.k.a. bunker fish uh, in the area that they drew in a whole bunch of whales, um, also a whole bunch of granites, which were fun to watch. But, you know, the highlight were those humpback whales, and we saw a total of seven different individual whales, which was a lot for one trip, and we had a blast. So again, first a couple minutes about the parakeets, and then about three minutes about the whales. And there are flocks of parakeets flying around, um, looking at the sort of brickwork, or back at this brownstone gates. And I'll just keep recording until they come closer. There's some grackles and golds also. So there's an old brownstone, ornately carved gate. No, there's one. That's one flying over. Right there. That was in the top of the tree. I'm with my sister Meg and my niece Soji. You oh. see those sticks up there? All those sticks are, are their nests. They build nests in the, out of sticks. And they like build little tunnels out of the sticks and they nest back in the tunnels and that's where they hang out. And do you hear them? Like the... Alright, so we had a, a flock of what I think was like 20 or so fly away. And I think I saw Cooper's hawk, which is why they might have been flying away. So here we're looking at five or six of them sitting at the top of a red maple, just hanging out, um, getting a little bit of sun, maybe you're seven, because uh, it's chilly. There's one that was, I just trouble judge distance, but... Watching. Oh, there it blows. Two L's. Oh, wow. Right next to the boat. Wow. I mean, not that I can see any better, but like, it's just, you just want to jump in the water. <laughs> like, I know, right? Where are they? I'm getting in. <laughs> oh, right there. Oh, nice. Nice. So it arcs up and you see their back and they go back under. Oh, this one right there. Yeah, this is back. There's goals everywhere and they're cruising out with some gannets diving. Oh, there's a blow right there. And there's a dorsal fin. It goes back under. It's kind of like photographic whack a mole. <laughs> sort of surrounded by humpback whales. It's a nice feeling. Yeah, it's nice. Oh, there she is again. You see the puff and then the back. Oh, right there next to the boat. Holy cow. Right. So now we're like king on a couple whales. Well, a few whales, but one is a pair, apparently of a we're assuming a, a mother and young that have been sort of like popping up in parallel like with their 
backs like arcing up next to each other and a few shots of, of good flukes, good tails coming up. Oh, back, oh wow. Like a beautiful silhouette of the tail. <laughs> the photographers are having a great time. Absolutely epic, epic well-watched trip here today at Morning American Princess.